This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. That can be found on page 965 in the book in front of you, the Bible in front of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus by his grace alone, through his merit alone, accepted in the beloved. Lord, this morning I want to ask that you would come to us and grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. God, would you open our eyes to see his glory, see his majesty, see his splendor, God, would we be given a fresh measure of the the reality of experiencing and seeing and beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And I ask that we would experience what Paul declares just a few few verses after this, uh, that the same God that spoke let there be light, and it was, would shine the light of the knowledge of himself in the face of Jesus. God, exalt him this morning. Make much of him this morning. God, let our hearts and minds be changed because we have seen and tasted the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. We ask in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So we're uh, picking up our second week uh, in a short sermon series uh, outlining our values as a church. And I'm just going to jump right in and give us a little review uh, from where we were last week and why we're preaching this. Uh, So if you have the notes, uh, just jump right in with me. Letter A, uh, right at the center of our pursuits together as a spiritual family. Has to be an understanding of what values 
motivate us to action. And so the reason that we're looking at these three values over the course of the next couple weeks, uh, our values as a church are uh, being a people of God's presence, pursuing and seeking the presence of God uh, as our first reality together. Uh, today we're going to look at transformation, and we'll, we'll talk about what transformation is in the biblical uh, understanding, and then next week we'll look at movement, what happens uh, as we encounter the grace of God in Christ Jesus, what that does by way of uh, creating witness and going out uh, to declare the goodness of Jesus in the gospel. But the reason we're taking time to look at these is because as a spiritual family, uh, we need to possess a type of shared value system, uh, a set of presuppositions or a set of loves that give shape to how we orient our labors together, right? So your value system, like what you see as valuable, orients your pursuits, Right? Like what you, what you see as fulfilling or making you whole or providing you satisfaction or completion, what vision you have of the future that provides meaning and worth for you, you will orient lots of your energy around trying to attain that. And so what I hope to do uh, in these weeks is to bring us into the scripture together to say these are the values that give shape to our labors as a church. So if you want to know why do we do the things that we do, why do we not do the things that we don't do, it's uh, an attempt to give flesh to and embodiment to a type of value system. And so we want to be on the same page together over those. So intentionally defining and instructing in these values will help us better together organize our labors in a focused way and a consistent way over time. Letter B, each of us has a value system, right? What you see is valuable, you pursue, Right? Our value system is defined by an image or a picture of a future that we want to live in. Right? Like this is, this is how you find out your value system. What do you look at and say, I will be happy when, and then fill in the blank. That's the beginnings of your value system. Our value system defines several things for us. It shows us what matters, what matters to us, what's successful in our eyes? How do we define success? And how do we participate, particularly in a group of people? This is both individual and corporate. Letter C, understanding our motivational values is essential because these motivational values will give birth to how we labor together. Now, I want, I, I want to name something that you may not, uh, it may not sit right on the front of your of your mind when you think about things. Every one of us, individually, and then us as a spiritual family, has been given and entrusted a stewardship of resources, time, energy, money. Now, the problem with resources is they're always limited, right? You can only spend a dollar in one place to the chagrin of everyone, right? When you spend the dollar, it's gone. You never have that one back, right? So where you spend your money, where you spend your time, right? You can only spend your time doing one thing. And once you've spent your time, that's done. And you're, you've moved on and you never have that moment again, 
right? So we want to be thoughtful and intentional because we've been granted this precious stewardship from the hand of our Father that we are to offer back up to him as an offering of worship and love and obedience, as an individual and as a spiritual family. And so we want to do intentional work to say, how do we want to think about how we orient our resources, how we give our labors, what do we orient ourselves towards, what really matters in God's eyes, what is successful in God's eyes, and how do we create a culture where it's easy for people to jump in and participate, and we know how to do that together. That's the hope of these times together. Look at letter D. I laid this out last week in more detail. Just want to share it quickly with you. I believe that the governing vision uh, for our church in the days to come is to seek to become and to build a praying church. Now, what I mean by that is simply taking two realities that define the people of God and bringing them together in one spiritual family. That we are a people that of our first fruits, our first labors is to pursue the face of God in the place of worship and the place of prayer together. And that we intentionally and consistently give ourselves to running after that both individually and corporately as a spiritual family. And that that gives shape to and impetus to all of our labors as a church. How we proclaim the truth, what we disciple toward, how we reach uh, the lost and those who are outside of the family of God, how we multiply communities and churches. That's the desire that's in front of us. But for our church to embrace a vision fully, meaning that we make choices, that's what it means to embrace a vision, okay? Embracing a vision that does not affect your choices is just pie in the sky, right? It doesn't actually affect boots on the ground, choices we make and commitments that we make over the long haul, meaning we show up when it's harder than we wanted it to be, which it's going to be, when it's not as glamorous as we want it to be, which it's going to be, when, we're, when there's more relational conflict in the waters than we want there to be, and there will be, right? When these realities face us, seeking to make commitments and follow through consistently over time requires a, a, a clear vision and a set of passions or loves together. We have to have a shared value system. So last week, we looked at our value to be a people that pursue God's presence as the foundational reality of all of our church. We desire to be a people orienting our lives around experiencing the gift of God's tangible or manifest presence in our lives, our family, our church, and our city. So I won't rehash that, but if you weren't with us last week, I invite you to go back and listen to that. It's a core reality of who we are as a church. But today we'll look at the second value that we have, transformation. So closely related to that one, uh, the desire to pursue and experience God's presence 
is the value that we have for transformation. In a lot of ways, this is like a logical outworking. I don't know if you picked up on it, even in the reading, right? In this passage that we're gonna dig into, when Paul lays out his vision for transformation, he declares that it happens as you and I who have been welcomed into the presence of God by the grace made known in Jesus Christ alone, as we come and behold him with unveiled face, we are changed. Right, So the, the reason that we pursue the presence of God, first and foremost, is because he's glorious and he's worth it. Right, like We want to encounter the God for whom we've been created. That's what we want, full stop. But also, in his presence, we see that we are conformed into his likeness, the very thing that we have been created for. So this is, in a lot of ways, like a logical outworking of the first value. So in a similar manner to our pursuit of God's presence, we have to be intentional and consistent in establishing transformation. And I want you to catch this as the primary measure of our success as a spiritual family. I want us to do some work together in the coming days and months and years to where we begin to ask the Lord by his spirit and by his grace to exchange any other metric for success that we might bring into our our lives, into the church family for his measure of success. And I think in the scripture, it is really clear. The measure of success uh, uh, of discipleship and pursuing the face of God is being conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what success is. Do you want to know what success in the life of Christ is or in the life of the church? It's seeing disciples transformed or conformed into the image of Jesus himself. Any other measure of success is going to fall short. Every one of them. If we look at numbers, well, numbers can come and go right? Jesus was profoundly successful when all of his disciples left him, right? Do we look at numbers, right? Do we look at money? How's our budget doing, right? Our budget's moving up into the right. We're getting more money. We're able to do more good in our ministry or in the city, right? That's short-lived. That can go away tomorrow, right? It's all the energy and excitement and hype, right? Like we got people a buzz, walking in the sanctuary, loving to be here. Like they leave, they stand out in the gallery for like 45 minutes afterwards, which I love. I'm not digging that. I'm not digging on that right now, but it's happening. But that doesn't mean we're successful. That does not mean in the eyes of God that we are succeeding. What defines success among the people of God is conformity to the image of Jesus in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our desires, and our choices. That is the measure of success, right? So any other one that we put in there, we've got to ask the Lord to exchange that for us and give us his values there. And we have to do it because it runs so counter to so many cultural standards that we have, right? We want bigger and better. We want more effective. We want bigger numbers, bigger excitement, more hype, more 
whatever you want to put there. Better coffee. (laughs) Has nothing to do with our success. Right? This will require constant and consistent retraining of our minds and our affections. What we see as desirable, what we see as valuable, what we see as productive over seasons of dryness and apparent failure. Hey, I just wanna, I wanna name this, okay? Especially for people who have walked through the last season of the life of our church together. Uh, if we only see when things are moving up and to the right as being successful, what happens when you walk through a hard season? Right? The hard thing is because God... I'm going to open this can and I'm not really going to get into it, but I'm going to open it anyway. God ordains difficult seasons in the same manner as he ordains joyful, successful seasons for the same outcome, which is to see Christ formed in you and in me and in a spiritual family, right? So we can't just go when we like it God's favor's on us, and when it's really hard, God is mad with us or disappointed with us. Actually, those seasons are tests. And a biblical test is this. They're actually both tests, just FYI. Proverbs says, man's heart is tested by praise. Right, so when everybody's singing your songs and everybody's thinking you're doing great, you're actually under the eye of God. But... Hard seasons where we walk through the fire are intended to produce and refine and bring to the surface the dross that we have let cloud our lives and our gaze and what we think is good and right so that God can take it off and let pure gold come out. Gold of knowing him, gold of trusting in him and being formed into his likeness. Okay, so letter C. What is transformation? Let me give you a definition here. Transformation is simply the process through which men and women are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in every part of their person. The power of God, I just want you to, I just want you to catch this. The power of God actually changes people. It changes people. It's not just that we act a little better or we behave a little better. It literally changes our desires and what we see as good and what we love and what we long for. The power of God in Christ Jesus changes us, right? So this is the process, transformation is the process by which we are as disciples of Jesus conformed into his image and every part of our our person. This happens by the grace of God alone through faith in Christ alone, by the effective power of the Spirit alone, right? God gives all the power. God gives all the power. He uh, provides the grace. He provides the payment. He provides the enabling. He provides the changing. He does all the work. And the process of transformation is something that we participate in by utilizing the means that God has given us in his word, right? He doesn't uh, bypass your faculties, he empowers them. He doesn't undo uh, your, your mind, he renews it. 
as you begin to step toward him and put yourself up under his word and ask him to renew your mind. Look at these scriptures. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans 8 as the center of what we see here. Those that God foreknew, he predestined. And he predestined them to something. To be conformed into the image of his son. Do you want to know what your end goal is as a follower of Jesus? Everything in your life is designed by God to form his son in you. That's the goal. And he's going to get what he wants. He's going to get what he wants. He is going to, anyone that he foreknew, he predestined, and he is going to conform you into the image of his son. And there's labor involved, right? Paul goes, hey, you guys were foreknown by God. He predestined you, and you're going to be conformed into his image. I work my tail off towards something. I want to see just like a mother in anguish of childbirth, laboring. What am I laboring to do? To see Jesus formed in you. To see the character of Jesus formed in you, the mind of Jesus formed in you, the desires of Jesus formed in you. Look at the top of page two. So saying this in a little different way. Transformation is the process where our faculties are more conformed or controlled and renewed in accordance with God's likeness. Let me just fly through these. What do I mean when I say faculties? You've been given a mind, right? Every, every one of us has been given a mind, a faculty given for the purpose of thought. We have a capacity for intelligent and reasoned thinking that informs how we understand the world and how we believe we should live in it. We've all been given this. Outside of Jesus, our mind is darkened and perverse. It's not like sort of just missing the mark a little bit. It's not like we just are lacking a few key pieces of information. The Bible says our minds outside of Jesus are darkened and perverse, bent on futility. In Christ, we are given a new mind and we're to strive toward partnering with God's grace to renew our minds and become conformed in our thinking to his revealed truth, right? So part of your transformation has to do with your mind. And I don't mean mind like learn some facts and pass a test. I mean the behavioral thought patterns or the habitual thought patterns of your life that are like ruts and grooves in the ground, right? When nobody's looking and the story that you're saying over and over and over again, that's what I'm talking about when I say mind. God desires, he gives you a new mind in Christ and then asks you, come and be renewed in your mind by the grace of the spirit. Number two, we've been given emotions. Every one of us has been given a faculty for sensing and feeling we possess the capacity for emotional response to circumstances and situations around us. Our emotions, in a lot of ways, are the products of our beliefs and sensory data that we've experienced. I tell a silly story to uh, il il illustrate this. Now, our feelings are way more complex than this, but sometimes they're really simple too. 
right? If you walk into a dark room and you see a stick on the, on the floor and you believe it's a snake, what do you feel? Probably fear. If you're my wife, you feel inordinate amount of fear. <laughs> Belief, right? I think this thing's a snake. And I'm experiencing some sensory inputs. I'm seeing something that I believe is a snake. I'm afraid. Now, again, this is a silly story. Our, our feelings are way more complex than this, but I actually do think it helps us illustrate something about where our feelings are situated as God has made us up, right? Because one thing that we have to understand is feelings are not always the greatest at telling us what is true, and they aren't often that good at telling us what we should do about it. But there is a place for them, right? They, they, they illuminate what we believe. They're kind of like this light on the dashboard that tells you, hey, there's a belief system working down here and you believe things as you engage this experience that it's making you feel a certain way. That's real. Outside of Christ, our emotions are storm-tossed and uh, tumultuous, in Christ, we're given the glorious ability to set our affections on Jesus and our desires towards what is good and lasting. All right, our will. The last thing we've been given is a will. The faculty given to us for the purpose of choosing. We possess the capacity for volitional response that actually orients the rest of our faculties, our actions, our behaviors, towards what is good and right. Outside of Jesus... Our will is in bondage, slavery to sin, Paul says in Romans chapter six. We are enslaved to the power of sin in our will. We cannot choose anything outside of selfish desire and vainglory. But in Christ, we're given a new will and called to cultivate greater constraint of our will. That's self-control, the fruit of the spirit, self-control, is constraining your will to walk in what God has called good in accordance with his grace that we might be conformed to his holiness. Okay, so these three faculties put together are what the Bible would call your heart, the immaterial or spiritual aspect of your humanity. In our world, there are many false paths of transformation. And this really matters to me to just illuminate this before we get to what is the Bible's path of transformation? Because there are a lot of, there are a lot of things being offered to you as to how transformation happens. And I think each one of them actually highlights one of these faculties at the expense of others. And I believe the church needs to be on guard against all of these. Because there's a quick jump into how we can baptize some of these and actually practice them and believe them even as followers of Jesus. So the first would be transformation through information. This model says that the main problem with humans is an information problem. We don't know enough. We, we're, we just lack something there. So the means to grow or to be transformed would be to remedy the lack of education, right? Inform people. If, better, if people were better educated, better informed, they would be better. This has uh, a, a lot of history, even in like public policy, even in our nation, 
that the fundamental problem with humans is that we just don't know enough. So the problem or the, the solution to that problem would be what? Educate people. Give people better information. That in the church, this model tends towards an emphasis on doctrine or uh, being able to regurgitate some type of belief as a means through which we're changed. And I put there John 5. This is the place where Jesus goes to the Pharisees and he says, you all search the scriptures vigorously thinking that, that you have life in them, but you don't come to me. The scriptures were always meant to point you to me, right? This is about relationship. This isn't just about learning better like information. So this happens even in the church. The second one, and this is the one that unfortunately I believe plagues us the most in our moment, is something I would call maybe like transformation through self-expression, through expressing my innermost self. This model says the problem with humanity is one that exists outside of me, right? So the problem is everything out there. Everything in here at the deepest places is good and right. And what I need to do is liberate myself from every constraint that exists outside of me so that I can fully express the truest form of myself, right? That's, that is a model of transformation that exists in our world right now. To this model, the truest form of me exists latent inside of me and is primarily defined by what I feel, what I feel to be true, what I feel is real about me. And so the goal of transformation or the goal of remedying that is to remove everything that is outside of me that would keep me from expressing the truest form of myself. In the church, this model has led to, I would call it maybe like an overly therapeutic model of transformation, where if we can just dig down far enough and understand things at the deepest level, then we can be changed. And I actually want to go, um, we'll get here in a minute when we get to the biblical one, but the biblical model of transformation revolves around renewing our minds and obeying. And there's so much being offered in the church right now that's saying basic truths of the scripture are oppressive, abusive, uh, and, and they get thrown away in the name of walking out some sort of self-peace or self-actualization or self-expression. And they're false. They're false. Um, I'll get more there in a bit. The last one would just be transformation through behavior modification. This would say that the problem is outside of, uh, oh, the problem with humanity is one of behavior. If we could cultivate greater discipline or expression of will, we could be changed. This is a ton of self-help books, right? Go look at the self-help book section. Uh, you're gonna find a lot of these. In the church, this model tends to lead towards striving and legalism. So what does the Bible give us as the way of transformation? I would call it transformation through communion. Paul declares 
that transformation happens as we behold God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are changed as we commune with the triune God as those who have been welcomed into relationship with him by his grace. Let me just read this over us again. 2 Corinthians 3 at the end. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, say we all, every one of us that believes in Jesus that has been welcomed in by the grace of God, we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are what? Being transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the same image, meaning into the image of Jesus. As we look at him, as we commune with him, as we speak to him his truth and bring our lives up under his truth in submission and humble obedience, we are changed. That is how we are changed. We're changed by communion with living God. Now this model is built on several presuppositions, right? I walked through the presuppositions of all the other ones. Here's the Bible's presuppositions. You were created for communion with God. That's presupposition number one. You were made in his image. You were given the capacity and the ability and the faculties to dwell in relationship with God himself. You have been given this. That's what you were created for. That is your purpose. That is your end. That is what you were designed for. That's presupposition number one. Presupposition number two is the problem with humanity is sin. It isn't a lack of information. It isn't that you don't have the freedom to express yourself in the truest way. It isn't that just you have bad behavioral patterns. The fundamental core of the human problem is that every one of us, you and me alike, has rebelled against the living God and chosen a way of selfish pride. We all need to be liberated from our love of vain glory, which I mean is just our love of ourself and our pursuit of our own way. Hey, this is why, let me just... Uh, let me just give a little back end to the transformation through self-expression. It's why the therapeutic model doesn't, doesn't work. Here's the problem. The truest form of yourself, if we are going to submit to the Bible, is hopelessly wicked, Decept deceptive and deceiving, right? There is no good in me, the Bible would tell us. Like, I don't want to liberate all these things outside of me so I can express the truest form of myself. That's actually only going to lead me into greater alienation, greater loneliness, greater experience of absolute uh, separation from what I was created to experience. That's what sin is, is me expressing my way. That's what sin is. So we have to push that to the side, right? We have to push it away. The reality of sin has affected every part of who we are. The third presupposition. We can only be forgiven of sin through Jesus, right? In his perfect life, his sacrificial death, Jesus opened the exclusive, the exclusive one and only way 
for mankind to be forgiven and welcomed into God's presence. There is no other way. Now the way is open to any who will receive it and come in by that way. It is profoundly welcoming, but it is exclusive in its scope. You have to come in and through the crucified Lord alone, through faith in him. Not on the merit of our own works. Not by anything that we accomplish. The last thing it shows us is that we are changed into his likeness by beholding him. We're actually changed, meaning transformed or conformed to be more like him as we live in relationship with him. So the biblical model of transformation is through communion with God, through relationship with him, through living in communion with him. Now, what I want to do is go to the top of page four. You can read that Roman numeral on your own. I would encourage you to. I believe it's pretty good. (laughs) Not just because I wrote it. (laughs) Essentially, what I'm getting at is the background for for 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Moses goes up on the mountain. Moses, after experiencing the grace and the glory of God uh, in so many ways, the burning bush, the plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, manna in the wilderness, a cloud of fire and smoke leading them. He has the audacity to go up on the mountain and say, God, show me your glory. Right? One of the boldest prayers in all of human history. It's like, what do you think all that stuff was, right? But he understood something. There was something about the glory of God that is manifest not in his raw power or his provision, though it is, but is manifested in his character, his nature. And so when God shows up to him, he says, I'm going to do what you asked. I'm going to show you my glory. And I'm going to do it by declaring my name to you. I'm going to tell you what I'm like. I am going to declare my character to you. And we behold God's glory by living in and uh, understanding the character of God. But I want to get to this part of 2 Corinthians 3 because what Paul is doing here is saying that what Moses experienced on the mountain is far surpassed for every believer who is in Christ Jesus. The encounter that Moses had when he beheld God's glory and God showed up and declared his name to him, he says that could be considered no glory to those who are in Christ. Let me read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If the ministry of death, talking about what Moses and the old covenant experienced, carved in letters on stone, came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of it, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, which each of us have received in Christ, have more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness will far exceed it. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. How many of you want Moses had on the, on the mountain? Right? I do. Right? I would. God, show me your glory. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my hand over you, put you up in a rock. I'm going to let all my goodness come before you and I'm going to declare my name to you. I would go, yes, sign me up. Give me a double portion of that. And Paul goes, wait, 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 wait. You're missing the point. In Jesus, that isn't even glory anymore. 
you have been given access fully to see the face of God in Christ Jesus, though by faith, right now, you experience what Moses could never have dreamed of. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, again, we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to another. So in this passage, Paul lays out for us the primary way of seeking transformation in the Christian life is by beholding Jesus, beholding the glory of Christ. Now, just gonna make this claim I don't have time to prove it. But the primary way we do that in the in-between, where we don't get to look at Jesus face to face, there's a day when we get to look at him face to face. There will be a day when what is now faith will be sight, right? That's real. The primary way that we engage in this by faith is through biblical meditation. It's through taking the truth of the word and praying it back to God, submitting ourselves up under it, agreeing with his truth and lining ourselves up with it. Not asking it to move around or bend for me or make a special exception for me or make room for how I feel in this moment. God, I come up under your way. I say that it is good. I say that it is right. I say that you are good and I submit my life fully to you. Conform me to your truth, not the other way around. So the, the primary way we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ is through the word. But not just through reading it. Read it. Fill your mind with it. Read tons of it. Read it as fast as you can. Read as much of it as you can. Please, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. And, and take time to chew on it. Take time to mull it over. Don't get so caught up in the big, how much can I read in one day that you miss taking it and literally chewing on a phrase over and over and over and over again and going, God, you say that you're my refuge. Right here, I feel so alone and I feel so abandoned and I feel like my world is shaking around me, but I'm going to choose to believe because you've given me a will. You've given me a will and I'm gonna choose to take my will and bring myself up under what your word says because it is more true than this feeling that I have right now and I'm gonna submit myself to you and thank you for it and ask you to write it on my heart again. Ask you to change my mind and move my mind and reorient me so that my feeling changes one day in accordance with your word. I'm not going to let myself get tossed around to and fro. I'm going to come up under your word. God, be a refuge to me. You said that you are a refuge to your people. I am your person. I'm going to come up under you in Christ Jesus. Be a refuge to me. Show it to me. Show it to me. Show it to me. Put my roots down in that reality. This is the primary way 
that we pursue beholding his face is through meditating in his word on his character, his attributes, his works. All through the Bible, we're called to do this, to rehearse, to chew, to mull, to pray how God has revealed himself in his presence. All right, let me give you, I'm going to give you a couple ways to do this. I'm going to charge you to do it no matter what you feel. And then I want to give you three really quick applications. And I'm going to do it in three minutes. (laughs) Hey, if you don't know how to practice biblical meditation, I'm not talking about like some Eastern mysticism where you're trying to empty your mind. I'm talking about filling your mind with the truth, chewing on the truth. That's, that's, it's taking the script and the story that your mind already does all the time and choosing, using your will to pick up the cart of your thoughts that's in this rut and try to create a new one. And what's going to happen is you're going to fall back into the old rut. You're going to have to pick it up and choose it again. And it's going to fall back in. And you're going to have to pick it up and choose it again. And over time, the Spirit of God will renew your mind. He will do it. Let me, let me give you how do you do this. You take the Word of God, right? And again, fill your mind with it. Like read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Awesome. All the time. Be in it. Read large chunks of it. Read it fast. Read an entire book in one sitting. Do all of those things. And take time. Take your word. Come into the presence of God. And how you come into the presence of God is like this. God, I come to you because of Jesus Christ. Right now, what does the Bible say is true about you? You're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter what you did yesterday. Doesn't matter what you did five minutes ago. Doesn't matter. Push delete on it. Good, bad, ugly. Push delete on it. Push it to the side. Come in his presence and go, hey, right now, I am in you. I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ. Imagine yourself in the presence of God, accepted in the beloved, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Take the word, the truth of the word. When God tells you to believe something about him, do two simple things. Thank you for that truth. Thank God that he is who he is. That's really important because he is better than we could hope for. Right? We want him to be all that he is. So we submit ourselves to agree with who he is by thanking him for it. God, thank you that you are everlasting. Thank you that you're seated above the circle of the earth. Right now you're enthroned over everything. Thank you that that is true. Just thank him for it. And then ask him that by his spirit, he would reveal that truth to you. Ask him for a spirit of revelation. It takes the spirit of God for our eyes to be opened to the truth of who God is. There's all over the place, you'll, you'll find that. So just ask him more. God, would you show that to me? So when you see a truth that tells you to believe something about God, thanks that that's true, 
Show that to me. Reveal that to me. Make that known to me. Make that alive to me. When you get to a scripture that tells you to do something, right? Flee sexual immorality. Put a guard over your tongue. Set your heart to do it. First and foremost, what setting your heart to do it says, God, your ways are good. They're better than mine. And I want to come up into your ways no matter what. I say yes. And then ask him for the grace to do that. Ask him. You need his grace too. You need his grace. Look with me at letter F. We should set our hearts to do this whether we feel it or not. Right? Most of the time you're not going to feel anything. You'll probably feel dull and bored and apathetic way more than you feel any other, other thing. Often, we believe the lie that to rehearse even longingly a truth when it's not alive to us is to be inauthentic or manipulative. Right? However, the scripture is filled with places where we are given the picture of what it looks like to actually agree with God into a change of our experience. This isn't name it and claim it. This isn't like me pulling down blessings uh, financially or circumstantially or anything like that. This is me going, look at Psalm 42 here. Why are you cast down in my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? What does he say there? Is he feeling the wonderful reality that God is good? Actually, earlier he's just said, I'm crying all the time because you're so absent from me. My tears are my food and they're mocking me, telling me that God's not around. That's what he's feeling in the moment. What does he do in the midst of that? Hope in God, soul. Don't run that way. Pick it up, put it in the, in the other tracks and go, hope in God. What is true about God doesn't change right now because I don't feel his presence. He is who he says he is no matter what. And he is about what he said he's about no matter what. No matter what my circumstances are saying, no matter what my feelings are telling me, no matter what, he is good and will be good. He declares to his own soul hope in God. We see this in Ephesians chapter five. Hey, sleeper, Wake up. And what happens when we wake up? Christ shines on our hearts. Right? That's, a, that's an experience of God's presence. An experience of his face. Wake up. Set our gaze toward him. And Christ will shine on our hearts. Okay, let me give you real, three real fast applications. Number one. And these are going to sting. They sting me. Okay, number one. Hey, no one can substitute for you in showing up and doing this. No one can do it for you. We can give vision for it. We can put tools in the hands. We have to, we have to with our own Bibles, our own minds, our own wills, seek to be renewed in our minds. This is like, I, I give this an analogy a lot of times with working out, right? You can have a great vision, right? Somebody can give you a great vision of what it means to be healthy and in shape and, 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 and uh, uh, give you the plan to get there. If you don't get out of bed in the morning, 
No one can do it for you. Right? Spiritual formation is very similar. And I think we oftentimes mistake that it's all God's power, that it just like overrides us or something. And that's not true. The Bible does not ever give a picture of that at all. Philippians 2 says, hey, people of God, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Reverence and like work it over. Why do you do that? Because when you do that, you're going to know something. God's already working inside of you. That's evidence that God's working in you. When you wrestle over it and and seek to press in, that's evidence that God is already at work because you didn't want to do that in your own strength and you don't have the power to do that in your own strength. So when you wake up and you groggily like move yourself towards it, you open your Bible, you sit down and you go, here I am, Lord. God, would you write your word on my heart? You know that God's at work right there. Right there. But no one can substitute for your showing up. Number two, you cannot do this on the run. You can't do it on the run. This isn't fast food. Spiritual formation, transformation before God, meditating, beholding the Lord is not fast food. It's not a meal that you can just drive in and drive out and get get going and door dash it to you. This is chewing. It's labor, it's time, it's energy. And so here's my encouragement there. Build your life around this. Don't build, uh, don't try to squeeze this in. This is a big rock that you put in first. Not one you try to fill the cracks with. It's not one that you can fill the cracks with. That might mean that you got to do different things with your evenings, or we got to order our lives differently, or we got to pursue different things, make different choices. But this can't just be something we try to fly through. This is substantive. It takes time, and the grace of God uh, will be close to us in the middle of it. Here's my third application. God will show up. God will show up. I guarantee it. Now, it may not look like you want it to. It may not look like you think it will. It might be from one degree of glory to the next, like Paul says, which is the image for that is a river that cuts into a rock bed. You don't see it do it today, but a decade, a decade, you will see remarkable change. Remarkable. There's been something powerful here. I promise you, God will show up. God will show up. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Just as the worship team comes up, uh, Servers for communion, you're welcome to come on forward as well. So we're kind of settling in. Let's just take a moment to just present ourselves to the Lord as a, as a people. And then we'll respond in the ways that we do. We'll sing together. We'll come to the table together. But let's just, before we, before we move to respond, let's just stand in God's presence. He's here among us. That is a fact. 
He's declared that where we are gathered, he is present with us. And so in your presence, Lord, right now, we just ask that you would speak to us. God, would you give us grace and strength? to behold you, to see you, to look at you, to know you. Just in your own way, even just ask the Lord, God, would you speak to me this morning? God, would you, would you make yourself known to me this morning? Would you let me see Jesus fresh this morning. There's some of you in the room right now that uh, God's putting his finger on something in your life. And he's asking that you would come into agreement with his truth about it. That's called repentance. And that you would submit to his ways. Just want to invite you in that spot. Don't harden your heart. Just receive, receive his grace and ask him for his strength there. There's some of you in the room, I, I just get this sense that the Lord wants to wash you in the reality of his acceptance of you, freely given in Christ. That you don't have to work for it. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to perform for it. God, would you wash, wash our hearts right now with the truth of your presence, the truth of your acceptance in Jesus? Make that known to us.